From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Executive Director Maggie Wood and Deputy Director Cami Watkins of Inclusive Communities. If you look at the demographics of North Omaha, one of the fastest depleting racial demographics is black people. So there are more, more and more Latino individuals moving into North Omaha. There's still majority white people that live in North Omaha. So when you say a certain area of town and people automatically associate a race with that, that's an indication that your city may or may not be racially segregated. We talk about the long history of anti-discrimination work as well as the organization's upcoming humanitarian brunch situation later this July. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Executive Director Maggie Wood and Deputy Director Cami Watkins of Inclusive Communities. Working with schools, businesses, and the community in general, Inclusive Communities provides education and advocacy related to the topics of diversity and inclusion in Omaha. We talk about the history of anti-discrimination work, as well as the organization's upcoming humanitarian brunch situation later this July. Here is the conversation. I mean, we do have some things to talk about, right? So I know uh, one of the things that I've brought up a couple of times just because it sort of surprised me was I had uh, Jean Stothard on the show uh, right before the election, the municipal election. And I was talking to her about Omaha because pretty much everybody running for mayor, one of the things that they would talk about in city council, too, was how divided the city is and the roots of some of that division. And so I was bringing that up to Mayor Stothert and talked specifically about the idea of redlining. And her response was, redlining ended decades ago. It's not really a big deal. And on top of that, I don't really think Omaha's that divided. To to sort of add a counter to that, I, mean, I feel like the mayor's idea was maybe a little oversimplified talking to me. So, I mean, what, what's your take, I guess, on that concept and, uh, and just the idea of discrimination in Omaha? I think so. I can speak on that being someone born and raised in Omaha. I think the hardest part for Omahans is that we believe that if we talk about the bad things, then we don't love our city. We can't celebrate before we've acknowledged the dark areas and that redlining, yes, as a law, no longer exists, but the practice is very much still in place. And I'll let Maggie tell the story of when she, so she's a transplant to the community. And so when we think about how segregated our neighborhoods are and that when you talk about North Omaha, people are instantly in their brain thinking black. Now, if you look at the demographics of North Omaha, one of the fastest depleting racial demographics is black people. So there are more, more and more Latino individuals moving into North Omaha. There's still majority white people that live in North Omaha. So when you say a certain area of town and people automatically associate a race with that, that's an indication that your city may or may not be racially segregated. I was going to say, you may or may not know your city is racist if... It is. It's more than just the act of redlining. It's the socialization of redlining and how that has been embedded and permeated into the society of Omaha. As Cami mentioned, I moved here in 1997 and was looking for a place to live. And somebody who I barely knew said to me, well, you don't have a problem with black people, so you could probably live anywhere. And I was like, what? It, it blew my mind. And then since then, you know, witness to how white people talk about this city and how segregated it is when they feel like they're in a room where they can speak as freely and as, quite frankly, in, an, in a very racist way without realizing that all of this has been embedded in them through the socialization of the city. I'm not saying that Omaha is a bad place. Again, I was supposed to be here for three years And I ended up staying, and now it's like 22 years that I've been here. So there is something about the city that is extremely endearing, and it has the potential to be great. How inhibiting is it then? It feels like it's not a great great mentality to have. It's kind of like saying we can't criticize the government or else you're not a patriot anymore, right? Yeah. we, we, We do see that on a national level as well. So, I mean, the organization that you are a part of is a way of addressing it, right? I want to I want to make it clear sort of how we get to the point of the organization and your joining of it. So, I mean, do you both have specific instances that made you either aware of discrimination on a specific level or what it was that motivated you to try to sort of actually make it your life to fight it in in an organized way? I don't know if I can point to one specific thing. And I don't know if I even had the words 
to describe it as discrimination, but it definitely like the inequities and just seeing those tiny differences and those ways in which people are treated. For example, I was out and there was this kid, a little white kid running around and like literally was in people's personal space. And the parent kind of was just like, oh, okay. And, and I watched kind of the reactions of how people are just like, oh, okay, ah, cute kid. And I was like, um, this is, this kid's like in my space. When I'm out with my nephew and nieces and the little black children, I watched differently how people will react if he were to be in their personal space in the same way. And like, he's usually just like very friendly, but we have to, all, we're constantly like, hey, come back here, little guy. Like we have to be super conscientious of where we let him run off to or his behaviors in public because we know that people will look in kind of the reaction. And I've heard people saying, not necessarily to us, but other people's kids, ugh, parents, why aren't they paying attention to their children? But I don't always see that if it's a white child running around versus a black child. But it's those distinct inequities in which we're going to be more like, oh, that's just a kid being a kid versus that parent can't control their child. And being conscientious of those inequities and the ways in which we will treat certain people based off of the color of their skin. I would also say, just read the comment section on any article that might possibly be inflammatory on social media. The the huge spectrum of individuals and how they feel and, and what their thoughts are around race or religion. There is so much that is playing out for us in real time for us to bear witness to. And I keep saying that, and I think that is one of the things that we do with our organization and, and what we try to do when we're having tough conversations. It's really not about being critical in a sense, but it's about what Cammie had said earlier. It's about naming the thing in order to have the real dialogue around it. So I would say, you know, those are some of the things. But again, you know, just moving here to Omaha and, and having someone ask me flat out or say that that particular thing to me is something that has always struck me. It's never, you know, I lived in Chicago. I lived in D.C. You know, these are spaces where Folks are celebrated all the time, and to, to come to a city that I also thought was going to be more progressive than the small rural town that I'm from, you know, it's just one of the many reflections when you start to look around and, and pay attention to what's really happening and stepping out of my own privilege and really listening to stories of individuals and, and being there when those experiences happen as well. So I think we've been in some conversations sometimes where we've kind of like walked out of a room and kind of had to shake our heads around like how do we hold space for people who are um, advising us or even working for us and we'll walk out of there and say like how can we have made that go better in relation to our mission as well on top of like the work that we might be having them do for us yeah like as what we're both kind of talking about it's that it's those little things we always assume discrimination or like inequity is happening overtly it's always these tiny little pieces, sometimes even just the way someone's like taking up space in a room and you don't realize it until you kind of think back and talk to someone else. If someone tells you, hey, I was in this situation, did you notice the way that they were talking to me? But when you spoke, they didn't interrupt. And I'm not saying that every person that does these types of things is doing it intentionally or with like malice. Yeah. But the impact of it is huge. And I think those are the pieces for me that started to add up in my life. And especially once you come to a community or a space where you're allowed to be your whole self. As a lot of folks know, like I ran for office and working with inclusive communities, I've been in a space that's been so affirming. And I never felt like my value was ever questioned when I walked into a room. But running for office, I wasn't in that space. And it was not until after I got done and then came back to working in my work environment where I realized that was the piece. That was the piece where I was psychologically exhausted every day because I had to put on a mask and pretend to be this other person and just smile and giggle and laugh when people asked me what my career was. Was I a nurse, a teacher, or a mother? And talking to me about why I would be qualified 
just like those tiny little psychological things that are directed at me because I'm a black woman versus if I were a white male or a white woman. So you're talking about there's not always malice necessarily in these actions, but there's a lot of pushback that it seems like white people have to if they're told they did something discriminatory, it's like, well, I'm not a racist, right? You know, this idea that the, the label of being a racist and that being the totally defining attribute that a person has, right? You, you want to be able to work within that space and make it a little bit more nuanced. It's not necessarily supposed to be like, I'm calling you a name. Is not, I mean, that's not the goal, right? It's, it's to, uh, to be more conscious and then to act more consciously, right? Yeah. So, so like, how do you do that effectively? I would, you know, I think for me, I would say I'm reliably honest. Like, I'm going to tell you what I think and, and how I feel about a situation. And that, again, is is a privilege that I've had my whole life. And realizing that now I can use that privilege to really address the idea around white supremacy and how we are benefiting from it. Everyone is, when you're white, you're benefiting from it. And at the same time, we're all suffering from it as well. And so several times I've had folks say to me, like, Maggie, maybe don't say white supremacy because that kind of turns people off and they can't really hear the message. However, how do we destigmatize those words so we can again get to the point of having the conversation around how do we unpack that? You know, how do we have real dialogue around how I might be showing up, what my intention is versus what my impact is being on a person based on me being out of awareness. So the more we can bring people into awareness around really how the cycle of socialization happens, where you get told a thought, you believe a thought, you teach someone else a thought, and then the system continues. So you look at the redlining piece, and that's what has happened. And, you know, I've had folks that have moved here as well, and realtors have tried to steer them in different directions of the city, there's this idea where we have seen individuals that have been moved here be told specific things about portions of the city where they feel like they're being brought in on something. But in reality, that's just another way to continue the idea around the socialization of racism. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Maggie Wood and Cami Watkins about the long history of anti-discrimination work done in Omaha through inclusive communities, as well as the organization's upcoming humanitarian brunch situation later this month. What seems like one of the things that you're fighting, too, is just that there's kind of this myth in the way that our history, especially over the last century or two, has gone that once some kind of racism gets outlawed, then the attitudes that led to it dissipate, right? But when you live in Omaha and you see a movie where Omaha comes up, it's always kind of like, oh, this is exciting because it's Omaha and we don't really get to see ourselves uh, portrayed. I remember watching the, the Malcolm X movie, for example, begins in Omaha as the KKK is burning down his house. And it's just like, I don't know how we can assume that, oh, yeah, it's all, like that's all over now, right? The kind of attitude that could lead to something like that, to even to somebody like Malcolm X, that, that's just gone, is kind of like this weird way of looking when I think about what Gene Stothert's answer to me. It's like, well, we outlawed redlining, right? So we, we can solve the problem, the, the attitudes that lead to that. I don't know that that's really a big issue anymore. To actively be anti-discriminatory, then, is the work, right? So, I mean, we have kind of, like, got these words that are entering the public consciousness in a way that maybe they hadn't before of to be anti-racist, to be anti-discriminatory. What does that word mean to you? So it's around the idea of it's not enough to just be not racist because that feels passive. What we're really needing to move to is that we've done a lot of education. Unfortunately, we're seeing movements to roll back education and out of the assumption that if we talk about it, then that makes the problem worse. And first, we need to get past that. The idea that if we talk about, like, it's a, I like to liken it to my doctor telling me that I'm overweight. Talking, telling me that I'm overweight is going to make me being overweight worse. Like, that's not a mentality that we have uh, um, on several things. And it's the same thing that we've had to dispel when we have conversations around people completing suicide. Like the fear of talking about it doesn't stop it. It's the actually not talking about it doesn't allow us to solve the problem and address how deep it is. Same when we come to the issue of race. So just simply saying, well, I'm not racist means that you're not actually taking the actions to move past. How do we actively change the system of racism and inequities and the kind of white supremacy ideologies 
that have permeated a lot of the things that we do without us ever knowing. But because we can't talk about it, we don't know what, how, what it actually looks like when it shows up in front of us. So anti-racist is really an active term, and that's where kind of the shift of the language around racism and equity work has shifted to because we want people to say, I'm not only not, only not physically participating in those, but I'm actually going to actively work to be opposed to it and make sure that I'm shifting and changing the kind of culture around which has created racist systems for other individuals. I love that language is evolving in the way that it is and that we get to watch it happen, just even with pronouns. And our agency has been around since 1938. And, you know, we were born as an organization based around having human understanding and having dialogue. And so, you know, one of the ways that, you know, as Cami mentioned about how are we actively dismantling systems, what does that dialogue need to have happen and how do we build relationships so we're able to have that dialogue? We would love to sit down with Gene Stother, Maris Stother, and have real dialogue around any of this stuff. And I think the way Cami and I and the team that we have at Inclusive Communities and folks that have come through our stuff, you know, we really try to not show up in a way that is anything other than authentic to ourselves and in trying to create brave space for other people to share their truths as well. So all of our programming, when we really look at how do you create an inclusive space, it includes people and their ideas that aren't the same as yours. It's absolutely paramount that we have these dialogues in order to move things forward. And I think if we were to like lay out words anti-racist and, and not talking about things, say if anti-racism is this and racism is the silencing of this, that's where people start to talk about this person may not be racist, but they may be acting in action in a racist way because they realize the education is there. Let's pull the curtain back. Let's see who's running the machine here. And it's language and how we're not relating to each other that is creating the divisiveness within the community. And if people are willing to stand up and say, hey, I'm a racist, then we know where we stand with that person. And then we can move forward. But when we start to unpack it and people start to see like, oh, man, I shouldn't have showed up that way. Or I could be better this way. And, you know, that's something one of the first questions we get asked with people from people is, what happens when you make a mistake? What happens when I say the wrong thing? Yeah, and it's not if I make a mistake, but it's when. We're going to. We're absolutely going to make mistakes around communicating with people because we're people. There's nothing about us that's perfect and never will be. And until we recognize that we are going to make mistakes around this, and it's about the accountability piece. And we talk a lot about it's not about shaming a person. And when we're addressing these, it's not, are you addressing it out of ego or are you addressing it out of accountability with the goal of changing behavior or shifting perspectives? And when we come to situations like that, that looking at being a racist and racism and all of that, it's a spectrum. And it's not just one state of being. I think someone's like, well, they called me a racist. It's like, well, maybe in that moment, some of the actions and the behaviors and the things that you were saying were racist. You don't forever live in being a racist for one time being called it. It's like, what do you do next? Now that I know, I can move forward. And But also, once you've maybe deemed yourself as an anti-racist, that's not just a state of being because in one moment you managed to do actions that made you anti-racist or an ally. It's a continuous journey. We move in and out of it. And once we stop getting so hung up on being called something and be more conscientious about what it was the behavior or the action that I was taking, which led to this label, what can I do to change it or just be more conscientious and kind of expand my vertical thinking to learn and grow from this experience? Because it's probably worse to experience racism than it is to be called racist. If I mean, if we're so upset about the being titled that, imagine what it's like to experience it. I'm talking with Maggie Wood and Cammie Watkins about the long history of anti-discrimination work done in Omaha through inclusive communities, as well as the organization's upcoming humanitarian brunch situation later this month. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on social media. You can comment. You can use the hashtag Riverside Chats and give us your thoughts.
We'll continue the conversation after this break. Welcome to Back Row Center, a podcast from Filmstreams, an art house organization in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm Filmstreams Communications Director Patrick Kinney, and I'm joined by Dana Ryan, Filmstreams Development Manager, and Diana Martinez, Filmstreams Artistic Director. Dana, will you tell us more about what to expect from Back Row Center? Every month, the three of us will come together to talk about what's happening at Filmstreams and in the larger film world. Our theaters are places where we use film to put different art forms in conversation with each other and springboard important discussions about identity, politics, and art with moviegoers of all ages. We're excited to bring these conversations to you in a brand new format and hopefully have some fun in the process. As many of you may know, we've been going nonstop since our closure in March due to coronavirus. From our slate of virtual events and Q&As to weekly new releases available on our site, we're excited for a more personal way to bring you all in closer to the heart of our organization by hearing straight from the people behind the scenes. You'll get to know the three of us, as well as the rest of the Filmstreams crew, as this podcast develops. Even though we're closed, we still believe in the power of film as a collective, communal experience. So subscribe to the podcast through whichever platform you listen, and we encourage you to tell us your thoughts about future topics, the films we talk about, and stuff we need to watch through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Filmstreams everywhere. Until next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, Back Row Center. Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. We're trying out a new feature here, a kind of letter to the editor, where you can call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week. Leave us a brief voicemail at 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. Today I'm talking with Maggie Wood and Cammie Watkins about the long history of anti-discrimination work done in Omaha through inclusive communities, as well as the organization's upcoming humanitarian brunch situation later this month. Here is the rest of our conversation. Yeah, well, it's, it seems like one of, the, one of the central ideas of inclusion then is that by including people who are not all the same as each other, you get a sense of empathy for a different experience, right? So, I mean, does it ever depress you that humans have to learn empathy and that it's so difficult for humans to like that? It's not just this natural thing to have empathy, apparently, that it's you have to do the work of figuring out how to empathize with each other and see humans as humans and really understand what that means. Well, I would say yes and no. We also work with high school students and middle school students and they get it. So we are constantly having our buckets refilled by the pure acceptance and understanding from high school students who actually have been our leaders, have helped us develop how our agency has formed, especially around our business programming. We've been doing this camp. It's called Inclusity right now. Um, it used to be called Anytown, and it is a cohort of students from across the metro area. We also have students that come down from the native lands in South Dakota as well. So we have some students from the tribal regions that are involved as well, Council Bluffs, Bellevue, Lincoln, Lincoln, that come and they share their stories with each other and they learn alongside each other and after those four days, it's, it's personal transformation that we see happen. They're engaged with each other. They're engaged with their schools. They're thinking about how can they make things better. And those kids would come back year or year. I shouldn't say kids. That's ageist. That was, you just heard ageism right here on this. And we're moving forward. It right, doesn't define exactly. It. We have been getting the world, or we've been getting these students ready for the world for 20 plus years. And now... It is our job to get the world ready for these students. So the emotional labor that's done by the individuals that do our programming is balanced out by really witnessing the true hope of tomorrow. Well, and I would also argue kind of to that point of all of us have the capacity to be empathetic. And the challenge is how do we offer that to people that we don't like? I think that's where we struggle as a community. And we're seeing more with youth once they get some of these experiences, to offer that to a person that may disagree with them or may not have the same experiences of them, it's just biology. Like their brains are still growing. They still have that opportunity to stretch and grow. It gets harder. 
in adulthood, but it's not impossible. And so I, having mostly worked with adults in the work that I do with inclusive communities in our business programming, and then also in a lot of the coalition work that I do, I also gain the same amount of hope because I get to be in spaces with people who are ready to have these conversations. You, of course, get the individuals that come in and think that we're just going to be calling them racist and homophobic individuals, and that's not the case. We start with, like, let's just talk about you in your life and the experiences that you've had and the people that surround you in your home, in your neighborhood, in your business world, in your community, and then we go from there. So we ha- we actually start with people thinking of themselves in an empathetic way. And when you come into these conversations that way, that allows people to not only recognize their own humanity, but recognize the humanity in everyone else. What is it about the younger generation? Why is it that they have a different worldview? Well, I think it's just, it's the same way with every generation. And this is also something that I remind people, like, the Gen Xers, Maggie here, who's just disclosed that she's 50. Just turned 50. Um, and then I'm technically a millennial, but I fall in that zennial area. Every generation that's the youngest generation seems to be the one that is the problem or the one that's coming with different thinking. That's the way the world works. When you're younger, you have a different perspective because the power, I really think it is about power differences and We're in our team coach that we have for our organization and is our executive coach for both myself and Maggie and a few of our other staff talks about VUCA. We're living in a VUCA world, which is like volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And that's the reality of our world right now. And so they've talked about the younger generation being the disaster generation there, growing up understanding that climate change and that we've been like degrading our planet for decades and no matter what people saying let's fix it fix it we're growing up under civil unrest which any of us that have been paying attention have seen this coming for the last 20 years and have been saying we need to do something about it so they grew up in this their post 9-11 world shootings in schools all of those things so that's why they're different when we're seeing because their experiences and the kind of closed-eyed naivete that you could have about this perfect beautiful world was kind of taken away from them because of just the world that we're in. And we have to be acknowledging that, which I think set them up already thinking about activism and thinking about how do I make a difference? So it's either you can choose to just accept it and kind of be me-centered because to think about we is a lot, or you can say, I can't afford to go through life being me-centered. I have to think about we because all of us are impacted by every decision that we make. All of us have these opportunities in life to grow and transform, as Cammie was mentioning. And what we're really looking at as being part of this organization is is having real dialogue with individuals and moving towards an understanding that information is out there. These students have had access to information that in my generation, we had to go check an encyclopedia. We couldn't check out encyclopedias from the school library. And now we have a a phone that gives us all the information that we could ever want. You know, they have this opportunity. And asking someone to put the genie back in the bottle, when you look at the research of brain development and healthy living and, you know, adjusting to the world, it is always around identifying what is real having strategies around how to cope with that or how to make changes and then, you know, working in communication with other people so that things can be easier. So I think these students have a real grasp and a touch on their own mental health as well and an understanding of what it means to have talk therapy, which is another piece that I think some of us in in generation that I was brought up in and previous that that was not a destigmatized idea. So when we talk about, you know, the youth already having the foundation, they're so much easier to have these conversations with because they're like, yeah, that happened to me when I was in the fifth grade or that happened to me when I was here. And I would challenge anyone to say that if they don't think that it's happening, have dialogue with people, like really listen to them instead of trying to change their mind or gaslight them that it isn't a real thing but it's really taking them seriously and hearing their experiences. And that's going to change a person's idea of how the world works when they start to hear it. I don't need a 
statewide study to tell me that racism exists. I'm listening to people. As far as inclusive communities go, then, what are some of the things you're you're most proud of, some of the accomplishments uh, that the organization has been able to bring to Omaha? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, you know, Cammy and I were talking about this earlier. Inclusive communities, we're sort of the silent partner on a lot of projects. You know, we started in 1938. There was a boycott that was going to happen where people came to a businessman's office and said, hey, we're going to boycott all the Jewish-owned businesses, and it'll be good for you because you're Christian. So how about we do this? And he was like, you know, I can't believe this is happening here in Omaha. So he and other business leaders founded the National Conference of Christians and Jews, and that little organization grew up to be inclusive communities. And we're here now still having this dialogue, you know, the desegregation of public schools that happened in 1976 here in Omaha, where the Supreme Court had to come in and um, lay that out that we had <laughs> that this is illegal and that this you know when you think about brown versus board of education and desegregating schools and all of that thing seems so far in the past but 1976 wasn't that long ago um, and to know that this happened within my generation of being in school really tells you that there's something that's happening in a double landlocked state um, such as Nebraska, where information and ideas around the world might be slower to permeate the general society. Growing up here, for me, it was really interesting to talk to my family members about the history of how things were. And my grandmother was born in, in Arkansas, moved here when she was 15, didn't get to finish beyond eighth grade. And one of her nephews his mother, who is much older, so he's about the same age, and turns out he actually was um, the director of affirmative action at Creighton University, so the first director that they had had. And he talks about when he was here in school in Omaha and being in a mixed classroom here, but then for he was sent down to Arkansas for school, and he was in a segregated classroom and seeing the difference in those inequities of how it was multi all black students in this tiny rundown building versus being in I think he went to Horseman or I think that's one of the older schools it was a mid, uh, middle school but so yeah there's all of these different pieces that are kind of m make up who we are and I think inclusive communities has been part of that from the beginning but often as that silent partner we were involved in some of the civil rights work that was here and I think that's the power that we hold as an organization of recognizing that we don't need to be the main voice of any of these movements. Like the movement should be led by the individuals who are most deeply impacted by the issue, whether it be homophobia, whether it be um, ageism or like for seniors in our community, whether it be around race, like we should not be the main voice. We hold, have individuals in our organization that hold those identities, but we know that there are people who have been fighting this good fight without the resources, without being um, allowed the power or being shared power to speak up about their perspectives and their experiences in a way that should be able to make a change. And so hopefully our biggest impact and what I'm most proud of is the work that we've done around our Omaha Table Talk series in bringing in presenters and speakers to talk with community members that often probably, usually it's their first time ever being asked to speak on a panel. We've had so many people that have said, I've never been asked before to talk on a panel about these experiences, my experiences with drug addiction, my experiences as a trans woman. And I think that's huge in how often we forget or decide who has value and whose voice should be heard. And we do that a lot in Omaha and we tokenize. So we'll pick like one lane of individuals and they're the only people that we're gonna listen to. And we really try to break that stigma of, you know, there's only one person and they're supposed to represent the entirety of the diaspora of this life experience or that identity. And we really wanna change that to say, nope, there's a lot of different people and this person can speak for a part of that community, but they're not the only one. And so who else can we invite to the table? Who else can we bring into that conference and share their experiences so that we stop just assuming that there's only one way of being Native 
or one way of being Asian or Pacific Islander in this community. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Maggie Wood and Cami Watkins about anti-discrimination work done in Omaha through inclusive communities, as well as their upcoming humanitarian brunch situation, which is later this month. Do you think that these efforts have impacted the people who do have a lot of the power, so whether that's at like a government level or not? I mean, did, are they listening as a result of some of this and acting differently, or does it have to sort of just come into something where like you talk about how the younger generation is the one that gets it more, but the younger generation is generally not the one in these positions of power at this point, right? So, I mean, is it just something where generations play out and power shifts over time, or have you found that ultimately a lot of the people with power or some of them even are, are, are receptive to the message and have acted differently as a result of it? I would say both of those mm-hmm. things are true. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's some people that are like, I embrace this, I get it. What else do I need to know? What else am I missing? We have a lot of folks that will call us up on the reg and, you know, ask us like, hey, this is kind of going down here. Do you have any thoughts around maybe how I start to unpack this within my agency or my outcome? But, you know, we've we've seen policy change happen. We've been a part of major trainings across the state of Nebraska for huge institutions. We work with municipalities across the state of Nebraska you know, I would say the the tough stuff is um, when somebody comes to us in a crisis situation because a lot of times, you know, it's not a woke culture or cancel culture, but it is the pressure from a community to do better. And whomever they're putting that pressure on, whether it's coming from inside a, a business where they're calling out a leader or they're calling out a policy or something along those lines – those are harder things to deal with because the information has been there all along and then people come in and they're defensive and how do you unpack that? How do you help them not other each other in the process of unpacking what that looks like too? Because once we start to speak about them or they or you know us versus them, we become closer to thinking about things in warlike symptoms, you know, in, in scenarios and we start to plot and to plan Instead of, again, having and seeing people as humans, that mistakes could happen, you know, how do we how do we say those things out loud to them? So, again, they're armed with the information and it shouldn't come as a surprise to them at a later date. Yeah, I would everything Maggie just said. And we do have a bit of a problem with gatekeeping in this community Um, that and not just it. And that's not siloed to one racial group or identity group. We have individuals that have gained a semblance of power and that they work to maintain that power by not allowing others to gain it, to share within it, and then to help kind of move. And so we hear a lot of, well, it shouldn't have been done that way or you couldn't do, I mean, I get what they're trying to accomplish, but we shouldn't do it that way. And so then they're kept out of rooms because I'm trying to maintain my power because someone might feel more comfortable with me saying it versus um, Maggie saying it in a room. So I think that's something that we need to address in our community. There are definitely people that are working to make sure that we're power sharing and power building. Um, I think it's not as much as it should be Mm -hmm. in this community, but I want to do call out that we do need to really address on multiple levels, particularly around the different generations the gatekeeping that happens in this in this community. Yeah, and it seems to me, particularly in the political context, and you know this from your campaign, that it's it's a lot of the time it's incentivized to not try to bring people together to talk to everyone as humans. It's easier to just call somebody a name or associate them with a scary word and in a lot of cases not even caring what the words mean, right, but to associate somebody with something that sounds scary. So like in the context of critical race theory sounds scary to certain people, so that becomes an easy way to demonize people uh, and to talk about it in those terms. But so I mean like a a problem, I guess a, a, a lot of the show seems to be lately centering on just how do people, if they choose to sort of exist in different worlds the the input's completely different um in like the sources of information one person gets versus another so you talked about earlier if you could talk to mayor stothard or if you were to talk to governor ricketts or somebody in that kind of position of power who doesn't maybe see things the way that you do here how do you break the barrier not just of the different sort of ideologies 
but the fact that I don't know that ideology always matters so much in the messaging because a lot of it just breaks down into I want to win this campaign and it's easier for me to simplify things into good guys, bad guys. So like how do I guess how do you how do you start a conversation that actually gets somewhere with some of the people in power who maybe don't want to hear this message? So I think the beautiful thing about us is that we're already in those conversations. Like we're already having conversations with people who see things differently from us. And it starts with not first understanding that there's not just an either or. There's there can be a both. We are a world of duality. Like I can hold the idea is that the prison system is not working for all people and be like, I'm a complete capitalist. Like there are individuals in our community that hold all of those pieces in recognizing that we have to just figure out what are the goals we're trying to reach. And that's what we do a lot of inclusive communities. It's starting at we have common understandings of we all are looking for certain aspects of a quality of life. Now, how we get there is different, but let's just start with how do you see yourself? How do you want to be seen? How do you want to show up? And then what are the ways in which we can work as a community, as an inclusive community, if you will, um, to accomplish those goals? And so when we have the conversations with individuals, and we definitely work on a kind of calling in culture. So when we see things happening in the community with maybe a certain leader or a certain entity or organization, whether it be a politician or just a CEO of a company, we'll reach out and just say, hey, we saw, and Maggie has tons of these conversations, where we'll just reach out and say, we noticed that this came out or that this thing was said, and we want to offer our help. How do we help? Because we can see the impact of this. We have individuals that we know that were experienced a, a certain situation of racism or a certain situation of homophobia that impacted them that may be connected to you. We want to help make it better. And that's generally how we start. Like, and as I said, we are, shame and blame have been shown to be tools that do not work to change behavior. So we don't approach people in that way. We approach it with, all right, let's understand that we're human and you're going to make a mistake. Now, if you know better and you still chose to go do things inappropriately or discriminatory, that's a different story and that's a different conversation. But we also, as Maggie said, what brutally honest, not brutally honest, reliably, reliably honest. honest um, it can feel brutal sometimes. <laughs> that we're also going to say this feels like window dressing. What you're trying to do to address the problem or the concern that came up and you're just going to kind of slap a statement together and then walk away and not have actually any tangible actions, that's a problem. We will also call them in on those pieces as well. So as we had mentioned, we are that silent partner. There's a lot of conversations that we're having with people behind the scenes that no one knows about and that we don't talk about because that's the credibility that we've gained from people in that trust of we're going to help give you the tools. Now, whether or not they choose to take them is a different situation. So that's why we also don't always say who we're working with, because just because we may have said, had a conversation and tried to help doesn't mean they took the advice that we gave them. Yeah. And I'd also say, that, you know, as Cami mentioned that, you know, the silent partnership and really having an understanding of what it is that we're doing, it's never like completely easy. It's really something that we really look at every time we hear about a company or an organization or a person or a culture, somewhere that's doing something that maybe the system has defaulted. Let's say it's not the people, but the system has defaulted to creating an inequity. We pull it apart in our own organization and look at the policies, how we communicate with each other. You know, even just recently with updating our employee handbook from a handbook to a culture map because somebody once said to us like it's not an employee handbook it's an employer handbook and if we're really talking about creating you know diffusing a class system creating power among all levels whether you're just starting out in an organization or you're the leader and you know cami and i as the co-leaders for inclusive communities have made the decision that not only do we do this work internally, but as an organization and a nonprofit, it is our obligation to help other people through this work. So we're never going to turn someone away unless they're, 
you know, straight up coming at us in a, in a very hostile and negative way. And then we have to really think about the safety and security of our team. Um, we also have complete consent within our uh, entire organization, whether you do something in person, whether this is an industry that somebody feels comfortable working in. There are some folks on the staff who may have had um, an issue with like larger corporations or with some sort of law enforcement or something along those lines. We know that that work still needs to be done because who else is going to do it in our community and truly hold these folks accountable, which is the other, I think, probably the scariest part. It isn't having the conversation with us. It's that we're expecting now that you know better that you're going to do better because that's what Maya Angelou said we should do. And also it's a lot of partnership work. Like, there's so much of what we're doing that we then, as I said before, how do we elevate those folks that are closest to the, the issue? So sometimes we'll hear that people come to us with, oh, this organization is kind of doing, and I worked within it, but I want to work with you maybe as a partner, a collaborator on how do we address it and solve it. And so we'll do that as well through collaboration to help somebody be better. So I know you're here in part to talk about your upcoming ceremony in July, right? So it took me 47 minutes to get to it. But <laughs> let's, what, what, what is it and what can people expect from it? So it is a virtual event. It is our humanitarian brunch situation. Yeah, so it's three words, humanitarian brunch situation. We used to have a big gala, a big dinner. It was a really big deal for a long time. And at one point we had to really look at, again, what's the culture we're creating here? How do we want to celebrate folks in our community who are really doing great work Um, how do we get our donors and our volunteers and our participants and our staff all in one room to really celebrate so that became the humanitarian brunch and it was awesome I felt like it was a really we were really getting somewhere with it Um, and then when COVID hit we did we knew people weren't going to be meeting in person yes we pivoted yes that's the correct talking point thank you cammy (laughs) so we created the humanitarian brunch situation because at the time as we were revising it we didn't know what it was going to be so it just became like well i don't know we'll we'll find out and it really it worked for us it gave us a lot of exposure we bought some media pieces and we were able to have some conversations and then we have a virtual event it is not something that you have to be anywhere at any certain time or open your computer. You don't have to put pants on. Right. Yes. That's the one difference between our in-person brunch and our (laughs) virtual brunch. But you want to create the illusion that you're wearing pants regardless. (laughs) Well, nobody will see you. Yeah. Yeah. So let me assume you're wearing pants. That's all. That's my point. Yes. (laughs) We're not going to shame individuals if you don't like to wear pants. I think we should change the dress code for the virtual. Like, pants not required. Correct. Like, I think we should actually put that on. All right. Sorry. I'm I'm being a downer on the no pants situation. (laughs) We do want to make it inclusive. Help me learn about this. I need to be more inclusive about this concept. Um, So, yeah. So we get together. We're going to highlight... um, four, um, we're, we're highlighting four different awards. We have a Volunteer of the Year Award, which is going to Alexis Sherman at um, College of St. Mary. She's like the Director of Diversity and Multicultural Studies. It's I'm sure I'm messing up her entire title, but it's around that. She's an amazing human being. We actually, shortly after she started was when we had met her um, as Dr. Mary Ann Stevens brought her over to just introduce her to us to talk about what are ways that we can partner. And she's been phenomenal, stepping in at the last minute. Great person. Great collaborator. So yeah. volunteer of the year. And then um, our Otto Swanson partner of the year, Spirit of Service, as we call it, is Out Nebraska. And you want to talk about that? Yeah. So Out Nebraska is an organization that was originally Outlink, and they serve the LGBTQIA2S plus community. And they expanded in the last couple of years to serving all of Nebraska. Abby Swatsworth and her amazing team, Cami Rollins, is out there as well. And so they do great work around education and workshops and trainings for the queer community. And so we have a wonderful partnership with them on what we like to call our queer table talks, which are conversations directly about the intersections of individuals in the LGBTQIA2S plus community. And our Humanitarian of the Year Award this year is going out to all of the essential workers. So those unsung heroes that have been out there really keeping our community moving, grocery store workers, delivery drivers, 
uh, restaurant folks, healthcare workers, all of those things have been really important. And, you know, we're always looking for folks to honor that aren't out tooting their own horns because we really want to be the one that's lifting them up. And so uh, we are currently in the process of collecting stories about essential workers so we can highlight some of those folks. So if you know of anyone, there's a place on our website to submit a story about an essential worker so we can lift up there as well. And then we added a fourth award winner this year because, you know, why not? So um, this award is called the Necessary Trouble Award, and we're going to leave it. Is it the day of we're going to make that yeah, announcement? Yeah, so we, the brunch situation will go live on July 18th, and so that will be on our website, and there's will be videos of all the award winners from our honorary chair, who is Talani Grundy Meadows and Othello Meadows are our honorary chairs for the brunch, and there will also be videos from our staff and all of the awardees. The Necessary Trouble, since it is a new one, we want to keep that as kind of in our pocket of who, so you have to tune in to our website to learn who that individual is, but we're super excited to recognize this individual for their lifetime of work in really getting into some necessary trouble in the spirit of John Lewis. Um, it is also National Ice Cream Day on July 18th, and so we are partnering with E Creamery, which is a local, beautiful ice cream gelato shoppy in Dundee. And for donations that get made to our organization, there's some special themed brunch themed ice cream. It's treats not ham and eggs. It will be. It, no, it will be. It's like humanitarian flavor. crunch. <laughs> or. Something so what like what that. what is the website that people should go to to watch this then? www.inclusive-communities.org. All right. Well, thank you for sharing your uh, general thoughts, I guess, on a lot of big topics and then also plugging the event. It's been great talking with you. It's great talking to you, too. Thank Thanks for you. having us here. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of the conversations on Riverside Chats wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and leave us a review. Also, remember, we're trying out a new feature here, a kind of letter to the editor where you can call in about what Omaha issue is on your mind this week. Leave us a brief voicemail at 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.